On this episode of Metal Embassy, I'm speaking with Josh Kayer, who's the vocalist and bass player of the band Longhouse in Ottawa, Canada. Before I get started, though, I want to give some basic background on current events in Canada right now, as some Americans may not be aware of what's been going on up there, and these are things that will be relevant to the interview. The term Native American isn't really used in Canada. Canada has three main groups of indigenous people, and they are the First Nations, the Inuit, and the Métis. The First Nations group, which is probably the closest of what we would consider Native American Indians, there are 634 recognized governments or bands, and about half of those are located in the province of Ontario, which is where Longhouse is from. Canadian Indian Residential School System was a network of mandatory boarding schools for Indigenous people funded by the Canadian government. This school system was created to remove Indigenous children from the influence of their own cultures and assimilate them into the dominant Canadian Western European culture. The first residential school opened in 1828 and the last one closed in 1997. Compulsory attendance for children between the ages of 7 and 15 began in 1894 and lasted until 1948. At their peak in 1931, there were 80 of these schools in operation in Canada, 44 of which were run by Catholic dioceses, though all were run by various Christian religious denominations. The introduction of mandatory attendance was the result of pressure from missionary representatives that were relying on student enrollment quotas to secure their funding. More than 150,000 indigenous children in Canada were forced to attend these state-funded Christian boarding schools in an effort to assimilate them into the Western Canadian society. Thousands of children died there of disease and other causes, with many never returned to their families. Sometimes they were buried without even grave markers to indicate their names. This brings us to May 28th of 2021, which is just a few weeks before this interview itself is being recorded when the remains of 215 children were found in unmarked graves near the Kamloops Indian Residential School in British Columbia, although only 51 deaths there were ever recorded at the school. The following weeks, over a thousand more graves have been found near three more schools across Canada. More of these sites are being investigated, and I would expect more graves to be found in the coming weeks and months as the research bears fruition. In addition, several churches across Canada have been burned to the ground in response to these discoveries. And while this has primarily been a Canadian story so far, there were some similar schools in the United States as well. And I believe there are investigations now starting at some of these locations to see if similar activities were happening there. And all of this is why I wanted to reach out and speak to someone of an indigenous heavy metal band from Canada to get their perspective on these events. I spoke with Sean of the metal band Archaic Earth, which is based in the Yukon, and he suggested that I reach out to the Doom Sludge Band Longhouse. So, thanks for listening to all that, everybody. I know it's a lot to take in. However, I think all that information was really relevant to what we're going to be talking about. Now, Josh Kayer here is the vocalist and the bass player of Longhouse, and he joins me on this episode. And first off, I'd like to say thank you for taking the time to talk with me today, Josh. Thanks, Chris. I appreciate that. And I appreciate the thought that went into providing that background information to bring light to some of the, I wouldn't call them sort of current issues, you know, historic issues that are coming to light more broadly in current and mainstream media now. So I appreciate that. And so I'm thankful for the opportunity to join you. And I do want to just acknowledge that 
I am joining you from Ottawa, and I do have the fortune and benefit of being able to join you from my traditional territories, the traditional unceded territory of the Algonquin Nation. So I am Algonquin First Nations. From Ottawa, born and raised, uh, my family hails from Kitigan Zibi, which is just about an hour and a half north of Ottawa in the province of Quebec. Yeah, so grateful to be here and looking forward to the conversation. Great. Well, thanks a lot. So the first thing I wanted to ask you is about the band's name, Longhouse. Can you tell me why the band chose this name and what exactly it means? Yeah, so when we formed the band a number of years ago, it was Mark, Casey, and myself. We were the original members to form the band, and we wanted a single word name. And we also wanted a name that had its ties to the earth and to draw on the strength derived from that connection to the earth. Now, As an Algonquin person, I do need to say that our choice from the name Longhouse isn't specific to the residential dwellings of my nation. We're an eastern woodland people, traditional dwellings were the wigwam. But Longhouse, we felt that there was this strength and power from that imagery of Longhouses that is not just specific to the Haudenosaunee nations in Canada, but also worldwide Longhouses. So did you have a vision of what kind of message or what you were trying to tell? It sounds like you knew you wanted to have ties to the earth with the band name and the first album is named Earth From Water. So was there a certain vision you were going from from the get-go? From a lyrical perspective, no. It wasn't until I started writing lyrics for Earth From Water that I started utilizing the band as this vehicle for myself to sort of diarize my exploration and reconnecting with my culture and my heritage. I grew up in Ottawa, so in an urban center, largely disconnected from my community and from my culture. There were elements of my culture that were present in my life as a child, but for the most part, I didn't form those strong bonds and connections. In 2011, my wife gave birth to our first of two children, and I started really taking stock of what I wanted to accomplish as a parent. And so I started my journey with reconnecting to our culture, our traditions, our ways of understanding and knowing the world and understanding our relationship to all things within creation and how we as Indigenous people, specifically as First Nations people, sort of position ourselves in the universe and our responsibilities to those relationships. So I used Earth from Water and then, you know, later on the second album, Vanishing, to really diarize my journey through that reconnection. So it wasn't intentional to start off with, but it definitely became a thematic focus for me and sort of that creative outlet. All right. So what are your biggest influences musically? So vocally, I remember when we were figuring out what we wanted to sound like from a vocal perspective, I was listening to a lot of Swallow the Sun. The low growls and sort of the the screams that they use in Swallow the Sun were really my influence of what I wanted to try and achieve. So Swallow the Sun is definitely an influence of mine. What is it about the heavy metal genre of music, which is mostly a European musical construct that has made you want to use that as a way to express yourself? That is a very good question. When I started finding heavier music, I started finding that 
It's such a different connection to the emotional process. I find that you don't often get that sense of a musical and emotional journey in sort of popular music. I really identify with that introspection of us as human beings and connecting on multiple levels and not just a very surface level, hey, let's go out and party. I just find that metal has more depth to it and opportunity for depth. And there's a freedom of being able to use that to explore many different facets of our existence as beings and creation. That's an awesome answer. But yeah, I think you're right on a lot of that. I guess we should move on and talk about the big, I guess we'll call it the elephant in the room here. And that is all these graves that have been recently found. Now, doing research on this, the thing that struck me is out of place. It sounds like a lot of this was kind of known about for a long time, particularly in indigenous communities and circles in Canada. I'll tell you, I had no idea about any of this until this started coming out late May and in June when this was hitting newspaper headlines. So I'm really interested in what your initial response to all this coming out was. Within the Indigenous community, this information was known. And in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, so in Canada, there was a commission that was formed in response to Indian residential school survivor court case or claim. The agreement that came out of that claim was to set up this commission. So in 2015, 2016, the commission went across the country to interview families and survivors of Indian residential schools to get testimony of the experience and to be able to create a historic document and account of the impacts of the Indian residential schools on Indigenous communities within Canada. And so through that testimony, this came out. There were numerous survivors and former students who shared stories of children who died and were buried in graves that were unmarked. And just to throw this out, and you know, for any of the listeners, consider your school and what is adjacent to your school. You know, usually there's a you know playground, some green space and areas, a parking lot. These schools were built with graveyards beside them, right? So just consider that when you think about how the blueprints of these schools, they were built with cemeteries beside them. That's ugh. I I had no idea. So like through these testimonies, these stories started coming out. And so then the, at the time, the commissioner for the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, Senator Murray Sinclair, started diarizing these elements of the testimony for these unmarked graves. And there's like horrendous, horrendous stories. And so I'll share a couple elements and not for like a shock factor, but I do want to just stress some of this conversation can be particularly triggering. And so I do recommend and advise self-care for anyone listening. But there were stories from survivors because there was a lot of sexual abuse that was rampant in these schools by school administrators and the priests and the nuns. There were stories of students who worked in maintenance capacities you know, would find themselves in the furnace rooms and they would witness either other students or other survivors with bundles wrapped in blankets being tossed into the furnaces or the priests and the nuns. And these were usually the offspring of the victims and the administrators and the priests. 
that were being discarded. So there are stories like those, stories of bodies being hidden in walls of some of these schools. And so the true account of how many fatalities resulted during the existence of these schools is very, very difficult to determine. So the community knew about these sites. And so through the Truth and Reconciliation Commission initially put forward a recommendation to investigate at the time back in 2016, and it was declined. Now, more recently, First Nations communities have been able to secure funds and resources to be able to work with organizations to do these investigations. And that's where we're at today, confirming the stories that were shared in these testimonies through the commission that these sites exist. And so now what shocked me wasn't the fact that it existed. What shocked me was the number. To your point, 215, that was the beginning of it. More recently, 751. A number of other former school locations have been identified. And so right now we're at about 1,500 plus unidentified remains of potential children who were lost to the residential school system. Which is a horrifyingly large number. But the thing is, it sounds like they may be finding more here coming up. They've only gone to four locations. Now, I don't know how many of these they were expecting to find things like this at. But like I said in the opening monologue piece I had there, the first school that this came out from, they found 215, but only 51 deaths had ever been recorded in that school in total, which you kind of assume this was probably going on in other places as well. They were obviously trying to hide their numbers of how many people were dying there to keep funding coming and that kind of stuff. One of the things that I learned about this as well just recently was when they say these were like mandatory schools, they were coming out to places where people were living like on reservations and stuff and forcibly removing children from their families to attend these things. Yeah, there are a lot of stories of children who were taken even without their parents' knowledge. The Indian agent and the RCMP, so they're sort of like our national police service in Canada, were making their, you know, their rounds to the reserves and to the communities, and kids were just out playing. They were apprehending them if they were supposed to be in the school. Often the parents faced punishment of fines or jail time or removing their food rations if they didn't comply with sending their children to these schools. And there are a lot of stories within the community of siblings where one child was getting apprehended, the other one was hiding somewhere in the bush for days until their parents found them and then them realizing that their sibling was taken away to these schools where they suffered all kinds of horrific punishment for things like speaking their own language if they didn't eat all of their food and they lived in conditions where because of potentially lack of funding they may have had to ration food or food was spoiled they were still forced to eat that food siblings were separated and then again the abuse experimentation experiments that were conducted because it was determined that these were quote-unquote great case studies on what happens to the human body if you remove certain nutrients from their diet unbeknownst to the children and to the parents of the children. Sexual assault was unfortunately pretty rampant. 
Yeah, so all of these harrowing experiences that were shared during the testimony of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was shared five, six years ago. And so not a lot in the surprising factor because we knew these stories were already being shared. But now I think we're in that place in society where with social media and sort of a heightened awareness to diverse voices and issues, societal issues like systemic racism that impact diverse communities, the impact within the broader popular society is definitely being felt and a lot more people are becoming aware and and sort of in tune with what's going on and wanting and seeking change. I'm getting this sense of disbelief, like how did this happen without me ever knowing? A lot of this history was obscured on purpose easy to continue treating marginalized communities in a way if not everyone knows about it. And there were opportunities early in the 1900s where some of these stories were being shared or there were attempts to share these stories that were silenced. Yeah, it's almost like a giant cover-up. So my next question is, and feel free to not answer this if you do not want, but I know they said the last of these schools in Canada closed in 1997. So did you or anyone you know ever attend one of these schools? I have aunts and uncles who attended residential school and also aunts and uncles and my mother who attended day schools. I look back at when I was born and when the last school closed, and this is how I try to relate it to some people, because a lot of times people just say, oh, well, you know, this is so far in the past. I'm like, well, the last school closed in 96. I would have been 15 at the time. Very easy for me to have been forced to go had forced attendance still been in effect. Is there anything you think that people should know about this that they may not know if they are not from Canada? When we look at the colonization process as a whole and its impact on both within the United States as well as Canada and that relationship with Indigenous communities. That process has a very specific intent, right? And it's to gain control over lands and natural resources. And you do that by removing original inhabitants from those natural resources and disassociating them from the benefits of those resources. And it's a long process. And so it looks a little bit different in the United States in some respects than it does in Canada and how that relationship formed. But our histories aren't all that altogether different. And so what I would say is that as we walk through this process of the truth process, we also need to examine some of our understandings of our relationships to all kinds of social structures and biases that have been formed over the years and how that either perpetuates or further exacerbates situations that impact the Indigenous community. So a couple of years after the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's final report, another commission was set up, and that was an inquiry into missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. So in Canada, at least, if you're an Indigenous woman, the likelihood that you will die or go missing through acts of violence is four times greater than non-Indigenous women and girls. And so 
the impacts of colonization through things like the residential school and systemic racism directly impact how marginalized communities become targeted communities for violence. And so as we have these discussions around the residential schools and what that impact is to the community and to the individual, we also have to look at what impact did our history also have on our own biases of each other and how we interact with one another. When we look at Indigenous women, do we look at Indigenous women as being promiscuous or as being exotic and desirable? Do we fetishize certain groups of women? And so how does that play into the fact that they now have greater risk of being victims of violence, but also greater risk of having less care taken in terms of investigating and solving crimes of violence against those communities? And so it's not just the residential schools that the process of truth and reconciliation needs to examine. It impacts so many elements of society and how we continue to relate to one another. Something to keep in mind is just to continually reflect on if someone attended residential school and during their entire time they were abused through physical, emotional, sexual violence and they didn't have the benefit of having their parents around to show them what love was. And they spent so much time here, they never learned through experience, through seeing how their parents reared children and raised children and cared for children. And then they went back home, and because they no longer spoke their language, they could no longer communicate with their parents, could not communicate with their community. So how does that impact a person in terms of creating those connections and bonds? Then look further on of like, what does that trauma do to someone? You look at mental health issues, addiction issues, alcoholism, suicide rates. But what if they have children that they can't connect with because they can no longer touch another human being's skin without having those traumatic feelings rush back to them? What happens to their offspring and their offspring and their offspring? And we look at this intergenerational cycle of violence. So when you walk down the street and you see the drunken Indian asking for change, what is your opinion of them? What is your understanding of their experience and why they're there? Because they're there because of a system that ultimately put them there. And so these are the things that we need to reflect on and how we interact with one another in a compassionate and understanding way. So I wanted to ask you if you have any ideas of what can people that are listening do to help? Do you have maybe a charity or just other action we can take? Anything, get more information? What do you think people listening can do to help? Well, there are a number of things. There are different levels of interacting and different levels of action. Some are way more involved than others. Some can be just very quick, everyday things that you can do. So if you're in Canada or even in the U.S. or you have an interest in learning about the history, I highly recommend exploring the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's executive summary report. The full report is rather lengthy, but they do have an executive summary report. It's still a lengthy report and it's 94 calls to action. Read those. Murder and Missing Indigenous Women's report as well. Those will give you a pretty in-depth view of history and the impacts of colonization from a Canadian lens. Be curious. 
Learn about the traditional territories that you live on. Who are the original inhabitants of those territories? Listen to Indigenous voices, whether it be within the metal scene and music scene, within social media content. You can Google Indigenous issues on YouTube or Indigenous history for whatever region, and there's all kinds of resources. Take the time to listen to Indigenous voices and share and have those conversations. All right, now I'm going to shift gears here just a little bit, but I wanted to make sure I brought this up. You're also in a newer black metal band called Dismal Aura that just recently released its debut full-length, Presagia Tristia. I heard that while it is a black metal band, you're avoiding the satanic tropes and going in a different direction. Can you tell me about that a little bit? We wanted to make sure, one, that we were able to contribute to the metal scene and explore different types of music that we love listening to, but also create space for diverse voices and exploring issues such as colonialism, environmental destruction, state terror, and but also create that space for people like myself who identify as Indigenous, create space for gender queer identifying persons as well. And so we actually have a pretty diverse makeup within our band. And so we want to be able to be a part of creating that space for diverse experiences and musicians. All right. So one thing I like to do towards the end of every episode as a thank you for being on the show, because it is the metal embassies, I like to encourage the trade of metal. So for sharing your story and your perspective on everything, I would like to gift you a metal album from a band from my area. And the band for this one that I picked is a band called Fauxhammer. They're sort of similar to Longhouse. They're that doomy, sludgy, you know, harsh vocals. And they kind of remind me of Winter a little bit, too. If Longhouse ever comes to Washington, D.C., I could see you guys sharing a stage together. No problem. It'd be pretty cool. It's an album called Second Sight from 2018. Thank you. I appreciate it. So... At the end of every episode, we play a song by the band that the guest is in. And for this episode, we're going to play the song No Name, No Marker, which is from the Vanishing album by Longhouse. And that came out in 2017. This song may be four years old, but it is very relevant today. I'm going to read the lyrics of the first two verses here real quick. And I think people understand. No mark where we lay, our names not engraved, but not forgotten. Beneath the cross we found no shelter, within its shadow we found no savior. We squeezed our eyes to disappear as the footsteps drew ever near. Now with that in mind, Josh, can you tell me about this song at the time you wrote it? Has its meaning changed at all for you since the recent discoveries of all these unmarked graves at these residential schools? When I wrote the lyrics for this song, relatively fresh off the heels of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's final report, and one of the things that stood out to me was this idea that we had all these unmarked graves and we didn't know the true number of how many children died in these schools. And there were children who were essentially voiceless, whose families never knew what happened to them, maybe held on to some hope that they were somewhere out there in the world but would never know and never be able to properly grieve and mourn these children. And so when I wrote this song, I wanted to write it from the perspective of those voices, try to do my part in a very small way to give them a voice, 
not to speak on behalf of them, but just to try to get that out there as a way of bringing that awareness to the metal community that this happened, this is a reality, and it still holds a very hurtful place within Indigenous communities that continue to impact them. And now we're seeing that today with these confirmations of the existence of these sites and the numbers that keep rolling in. The month of June in Canada, I don't know if it's the same in the U.S., is a National Indigenous History Month, and we have National Indigenous People's Day on June 21st. And so for the month of June, I've reposted about the song because of its relevance, and I posted with a note saying that all of our album sales for Vanishing, or of the track itself, all proceeds we were going to donate to the National Center of Truth and Reconciliation, who maintains this historic document and provides support for Indian residential school survivors and families through their crisis helpline. I will be extending that through the month of July as well. Actually, I'm going to extend it for the rest of the summer, so through July and August as well. All right, so this is No Name, No Marker from the album Vanishing.
Metal Embassy is brought to you by me, Metal Chris, and DCHeavyMetal.com. I personally record, edit, and produce each episode for your listening pleasure. The Metal Embassy theme and credit music was written, recorded, and produced by Stefan Elie. The Metal Embassy logo was made by the Lord of the Logos, Christoph Spazgel. If you have questions, comments, criticism, or suggestions for future episodes, you can email me at dcheavymetal at gmail.com. This episode was recorded in Adobe Audition, and I used an ElectroVoice RE320 microphone. I conducted this episode's interview with Joshua Kayer via Skype on July 8, 2021. The song No Grave, No Marker was used with permission and can be purchased along with the rest of the Longhouse discography at longhouse1.bandcamp.com. Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep it metal, everyone.